And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And again, my favorite time uh, or my favorite part of the show where we get to pe- we get to talk to people uh, that are experts in their field, people that are smarter than I am. <laughs> and maybe that's not the best plug for your firm or your show, but but I mean that. I, I love talking to very competent people that are specialists in their field. And uh, our guest today is absolutely no exception. I think he's one of the hardest working guys in the space. Had him on before. Great to have him back. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Josh Young, uh, the manager of Bison Interests, the fund, uh, specializing in, in hedge fund down based out of Houston, uh, focused on energy. Uh, Josh has been one of the preeminent voices, really bringing the whole energy shortage, I think, to the you know, so, you know, I, there have been other people, too, but he, he was very early to it, and he's profited nicely from it and really stuck to his gun. So it's kind of a long introduction, Josh, but thank you so much for joining us, man. It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So, so I hear there's going to be someone who's smart and has a lot of expertise. Uh, I'm excited to hear from them. <laughs> Buddy, don't discourage me, man. Uh, <laughs> you're supposed to be that guy. If you don't have the answers for me, buddy, I, I might be up a crick without a paddle. Uh, but uh, anyway, so so how how well, how are things in your world, man? I, I, how are things kind of give us just a, a short synopsis of you know, what you've seen here in oil markets, uh, you know, and then we'll dig into the deeper details, but just, just a quick synopsis of what you've seen in oil markets over the last couple months since the last time we talked. Yeah. So, um, when I think we last spoke, I think was a chase on as well. Yeah. Um, yep. So, so he was bearish short term on oil and I generally just don't take short term, uh, views on things. Um, or have low conviction in my, I I like to joke that my short-term crystal ball is broken. And and since then, oil prices have fallen quite a bit, um, at least on the front end of the curve. And I think it's really interesting. What I do is actually a little different from what I find myself spending a lot of time talking publicly about. So what I do is I spend time looking for great individual investment opportunities, typically with asymmetric upside, multiple paths to downside protection on the public equity side focused on oil and gas companies. And what I find I talk a lot about is oil macro, in some cases, unfortunately, shorter term oil macro, where you know the work that, that I do and that we do here at Bison uh, helps inform us on that. But I feel like it's important to, to be a little bit more open about sort of where, where I'm spending my time. So, so how things are going is actually pretty good. Uh, oil and gas stocks, even though oil pulled back a lot, they've actually done pretty well. And um, I think smaller stocks have done poorly sort of across the market, not just oil and gas. Um, and so there's been a little bit of outperformance by larger cap, which is not something I focus as much on. Um, so that's been a little frustrating, but it's been a very interesting market, very big divergence in oil and gas equities versus the commodity um, and actually versus the commodities, including natural gas. And, you know, it's just a very interesting time and very challenging. Boy, you said it, pal. Uh, <laughs> challenging. You know, and, and I, I, you know, I, I know that uh, we say that, and I think, you know, just so people know, and I'm not sticking my chest out for either one of us here, but I think when you say things are challenging, people are like, well, that's because you're not doing well. Eh, the value fund I runs down two and a half percent on the year. I know you're substantially up. We're not doing poorly. Uh, it, it, and off the air, 
I was expressing to you some of my frustrations with this market. But before we get into that, I've got some things. I, Josh, I think everybody, you know, you've made you've made the rounds. <clears throat> I saw your video on Real Vision the other day. I think there's a lot of people out there talking about what is currently happening in oil. But I want to take a little bit of a trip back in time for for the edification of the listeners, but also for myself. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned managing money for 15 years is I think it's always appropriate when when the market kind of throws a curveball at you. Um, I, I, I've learned to not sit back with clenched fists and say the market's wrong. Right. <laughs> I've, I've, I've learned that through pain and time. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm going to attack immediately when when prices move against me. But it does mean that I want to revisit my thesis. Right. And I want to go back through it. I want to check to see if there are things that I missed. And I want to start right at the beginning uh, prior to covid and talk about how we got here. Um, and and you were the perfect guy to have on the show, because some of these questions have been running through my mind lately. And I've got my ideas, but I know that I was not paying as much attention at all to the energy sector prior to, to the last you know, two years, especially post-COVID, as you were. So I want to I start pre-COVID and the state of the oil market there. I, I had a client ask an interesting question the other day, and he goes, Zach, I understand about the energy shortages now. I get it. And he goes, but what I really don't understand is how the picture changed so much in the space of 16 months. Nobody was concerned. We did not have exorbitantly high oil prices at the end of 2019. Nobody was talking about shortages. Now, perhaps they existed at that time and just nobody was paying attention. But let's start there. What, what was the state of the oil market prior to COVID? And when did you start? What, what bells went off that there were real problems uh, in terms of supply? When did you start noticing that? So I think it helps to go back further. Okay. And I'm going to hop in a time machine. I'll try to keep this very brief. But I started investing in oil and gas companies in the public market professionally in 2007. So I like to joke that I've been doing this so long that I was doing it back when it was popular the last time. And <laughs> Um, when, when you look at what the world looked like, so I attended some conferences 2007, 2008, 2009, even after the global financial crisis in 2009, there were still hundreds of public equity funds focused on oil and gas. There were huge research efforts at all the hedge funds and big mutual funds and value funds on oil and gas, tons of dedicated capital, both from those sort of broader generalist funds as well as from specific oil and gas funds. And what what we've seen since then, so that was sort of towards the end of the uh, peak of that bull market that started really in 2001. And that started from a decade plus of underinvestment um, that that came after a giant oil bull market in the 70s and early 80s. And so the reason it's so important to understand that is that it didn't look like that at all. And if, if I had better understood it, maybe I would have been better off going and focusing on tech or some of the other things I was doing at the time quite successfully. Um, and I think it's important to understand sort of where we've been because where we've been now is essentially a seven year down market for oil and gas 
capital expenditures. And actually, really, oil field services activity, it looks like, peaked globally in 2012, along with the sort of general blow-off top in the commodity bubble. And so you had this huge investment wave associated with China and sort of other other factors along with the underinvestment previously that culminated in 2012. So, okay, so how's that relevant for this? I think the problem started in 2012 with underinvestment and it was just that the clock started ticking and it accelerated in 2014 when oil prices crashed and when a lot of capital was pulled. Uh, and then it further accelerated in 2016 when there was a, another crash um, and then 2018, when there was another oil crash, and then 2020. And the reason it's so important, I think, to understand the history of this is each of those crashes was followed by enormous rallies that got a lot of people excited. And I mean, frankly, we launched Bison in 2015 uh, after the 2014 crash, thinking, hey, now is an opportunity to generate a above market return in a multi-year sort of re-rating back up, maybe not to the highs of 2014, but maybe back to sort of, if you use the 2007 to 2014 sort of average valuations and framework, there was room for a multiple times return relative to the valuations then. Um, obviously, that was wrong. Um, but it's helpful, I think, to understand we've had these sort of waves of people deploying material capital, public, private, distressed debt. And if you deployed capital through that time, up until this last one, you got destroyed. And it's amazing we're still around, but there are very, very few oil and gas focused funds. And there's even fewer oil and gas public equity funds uh, remaining uh, after this sort of huge wave. So, so What's changed is that, I guess, during COVID, there were a lot of funds and there were a lot of companies that gave up. And um, there was a very powerful sort of ESG or green alternative energy narrative that, hey, this stuff is going away. And I think a lot of people bought it and a lot of capital bought it and came in and just heavily invested into vaporware sort of technologies and companies. And um, so I think I think it was just sort of that last big storm that really washed out a lot of the detritus and really cleared the way. Um, but again, I think I think it's important to think about it from a longer term perspective because this isn't something that started 16 months ago. This is something that started 10 years ago. Okay, so it, it, now I understand the way that it feeds the, the feedback loop through the, the 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 funds. But if we look at the physical, is is when, when, how different is the production picture today than it, you know, where is global production of oil today compared to where it was at the end of 2019? So I don't think that's the most relevant thing from a multi-year opportunity perspective. Okay. I think the most relevant thing is starting with exploration, how much oil in the ground has been discovered in the last year or how much, and like, let, let's say last calendar year, versus how much was discovered in 2012 versus how much was discovered in 2002 and going back in time. And so the, because if you think about it, you have sort of prospect, discovery, delineation, development, production, and then depletion of that production. You always need to be refilling that funnel in order to be able to have sustainable production. It's not a question of how much production there is, in my opinion. It's a question of how much sustainable production there is, how much production will there be 
two years from now, five years from now at current investment levels and at varying investment levels and activity levels. So the problem is, and the thing that has me so medium to long-term bullish on oil, again, acknowledging that the short-term from my perspective is unknowable, um, is that there's been, we've been burning the furniture. So there's been way too little exploration there's been moderate amounts of development, or sorry, a delineation, and there's been a lot of development. And so there's a lot of discussion around the rig count, around development, and you know it's, it's bounced back a lot, but there hasn't been enough delineation and there's been way too little exploration. And so we're, we're at this point where you need a whole revitalization of the upstream sector, and then it gets worse. You also need, or better, if you're you know bullish. But if you if you're worried about the world's supply for oil, um, you also need the oil services whole value chain to get rebuilt as well. Same sort of uh, framework in terms of you you know you need people to be trained and a sort of consistent workforce, which we don't have. You need rigs. You need. Uh, pressure pumping you need there's a whole ecosystem and like even the fabrication facilities aren't there and the people to build the stuff aren't really there and the technologies haven't really improved and there's lots of old rusted equipment and supply chains are broken so so there's this whole big thing it's not again and that's why i think it matters so much to look at the like how we got here to understand where we're going and and maybe to better understand the last 16 months or two years. Uh, It makes a lot more sense, I think, in the context of a multi-year bear market and evisceration of the the sort of prospect to production uh, cycle as well as the oil field services cycle. Okay, gotcha. So in summation, would it be fair to say that the bull case in oil isn't so much about today, but looking forward and perhaps you could say strong oil prices really are forecasting the lack of, you know, that that it's more of a forecast of the lack of future supply. Would that, would that be, would that be fair to say? Well, I mean, I think it's both, but I think the, the depletion in inventories is helpful in terms of tracking sort of what's been happening and what's going on right now. But I think I think what matters less for producers is um, you know what the spot price is for oil or the current inventory level. And I think what matters a lot more is the likely inventory levels over time and the likely market clearing price over time driven by supply, which I think there's a very good argument that it's likely to disappoint. And we've had this view shared it publicly repeatedly over the last number of years and been right on it consistently. So that's like so far so good with this framework and you know (laughs) it's looking pretty good (laughs) looking out the next year or two eog and others have been talking about this uh eogs uh we're not invested not recommending the stock they're a leading oil and gas independent so uh smaller producer than an exxon they don't own refining or chemicals or much midstream, but they do, they're one of the leaders in unconventional shale development. And their assessment is that uh, U.S. production is going to disappoint this year, it's going to disappoint more next year. And again, this framework has been helpful for that. Um, So it's helpful to understand, I think, where inventories are and sort of these short-term things. It's like good to watch in case something really goes off the rails, if there's some big discovery or some other thing that could bring a lot of production on in the short term. Um, But I think it's more just helpful to 
to watch it, to understand it, and then to put it in context of this sort of larger multi-year process. Okay. Now, pivoting a little bit, because um, one of the things, and, and this is one of the things I love about your research, is you spend a lot of time talking to the people in the field and the people making decisions. And, and uh, again, I've learned the hard way that, um, <laughs> that, that when you want to understand what's going on, uh, listening to all the pundits and the talking heads in the media very rarely is going to give you a clear picture. Uh, you know, for lack of a better term, it's always best to go to the horse, you know, get it from the horse's mouth. Um, <clears throat> and I'm assuming you, you, you subscribe to that, that same type of thought based on your work. Um, first of all, what is the state of production right now? Are we seeing a, you know, whether it's via rig counts are, are we seeing a market response to oil prices in the sense that are we seeing it kind of thaw a little bit and, and, and are we seeing companies moving toward more production or are they still standing pat or are they, you know, are they sitting, are, are they sitting back? So, yeah, I agree. Uh, getting field intel and talking with the companies that are active as well as sort of looking across the value chain to make sure there's not something big that that's being missed, which, which frequently happens. And it's one of the reasons we've been putting out some of the research that we put out and often get questions about it. Like we put out something on the Waha hub, uh, being underpriced essentially and likely to re-rate higher a couple of years ago. And people looked at it and scratched their heads and it was great. Like you could go buy Permian producers that had a lot of natural gas that weren't making any money on it. And then the Waha hub went from a huge discount. You basically made no money on your gas to making a ton of money on your gas. And so I had dinner with the CEO of a, of a small public oil company where I think they went from netting essentially zero or even negative on their gas to now it's a material contributor to their cash flow. So yeah, I think it matters a lot to, to pay attention to these things. I think one comment on that is often there's context missing or there's a perspective missing from anyone active in the process. So we'll talk to CEOs, we'll talk to people in the field, we'll talk to the services companies and the midstream companies and look at the royalties and the, the auctions and just sort of try to get a holistic perspective, but also pay attention to the uh, market prognosticators and sort of what's happening in the broader economy and, and sort of pulling that together from a holistic perspective, uh, try to build an understanding of what's actually happening as well as sort of the trajectories. So I think it it really helps to sort of have that full view. And it's weird because we're talking, I'm, I'm talking a lot right now. That's not my preference. My preference is to, <laughs> to sit and listen and hear sort of what's happening, what I'm missing. Sometimes I'll talk just to get feedback. Um, and it's one thing, um, you know, social media has been great for this. We'll put out stuff. I'm probably too active on it, but it's great because we get so much feedback from people in the field, from various technical experts, and it's really helpful to sort of hone in on, on what's going on. Um, in terms of companies ramping up or not, um, I think there's a little too much focus on, hey, is XYZ company going to go 3% or 0% or 10% this year? And I think I think the, the thing that matters more than that, obviously that matters in aggregate. If everyone grows 20%, then obviously production isn't going to fall. It's going to grow in aggregate. But any one individual company growing X percent instead of you know X plus two or something percent, it just doesn't matter that much 
from my perspective. I think what matters more is what their challenges are or their availability of services, of capital, um, and then how much how much it takes to get that more production. So a Canadian company, they're growing a tiny bit. They added a ton to their capital budget to grow that tiny bit. That's an indicator, hey, their efficiency isn't improving or Pioneer, uh, I don't own it, great company. Um, they're they're focusing now on some of their gas plays because they've talked about they're, they're a winner from that Waha thesis that, that we were right on that where gas went up a lot. They're talking about developing some of their gas plays um, and their, their gas percentage is going up. And so that's nice, but it's also an indicator that they're spending money going for oil and they're getting more gas. And so I think there's like a little bit more nuance there. And when you when you like notice what's actually happening with each of these producers and, and you sort of pull it out and aggregate these sort of changes and differences, I think it really helps in building a better perspective on the macro for oil, as well as understanding the, not just understanding what's happening right now, but also uh, sort of calibrating where we're at in this uh, oil bull market. Okay. And then, so, so, but as for, just to understand in the short term, and I and I completely agree with you in terms of the the longer term thesis, and I would agree with you as well uh, when it comes to short term movements. My, my, my crystal ball is broken, especially in this market. I, I I don't. There may be exceptions. I I um I, I don't recall a market that seems to swing on little to no news the way that this one does. And, and we, I mean, we could probably do three episodes on that as well, but, um, and I don't, I don't want to go down that path. I want to stick to our knitting here and, and, and stay in, in at least your band of expertise. Um, what are you seeing for right now? Are we seeing companies still standing pat? And like I said, I know there's exceptions, but if we look industry wide, are you seeing a ramp of production? Um, you know, I'm looking at rig counts. They look pretty, benign to me at this point but again i'm not looking at it with your eye um are, are you seeing are you seeing that exploration response or or are they still holding the purse strings tight yeah so so rig counts are up a lot from the start of the year uh, we put out something at the beginning of the year forecasting that um they needed to go up a lot because uh more wells were being completed and turned on than were being drilled and so you needed more rigs just to catch up to the activity level on completions at the start of the year. And so that's played out. And so it's not really a surprise that there would be so much more production uh, or sorry, so many more rigs and so little production associated with those incremental rigs. I think there's there's a narrative and I, I accidentally said it, but I didn't mean it um, that that uh, there's a narrative that more rigs means more production. And that was actually wrong. Um, more rigs in this case meant um just that you'd be able to sustain the the level of completions and the the level of the number of new wells that were being brought on late last year, early this year, um, without uh, so so you needed more rigs to be active there. There was also another sort of odd narrative where uh, people were arguing that well productivity was falling a lot because you could see there were more rigs, but it wasn't really affecting the production trajectory. And that's where it matters. You kind of want to understand what the context is, and the context of these additional rigs um, was just sustaining the completion and new well activity level. Uh, it wasn't to necessarily accelerate production growth. 
uh, or, or sort of change beyond where where guidance was essentially for production. So, so it's not, there's, there's maybe some small amount of core depletion. And I think that the better evidence for that is sort of the pioneers of the world where their gas to oil ratio is going up uh, in what's supposed to be mostly an oil field. Um, but I, I think there, there's sort of these complex narratives, but specifically to the question, you know, I think most producers are producing roughly in line with what they said. There are a few that are, that are growing a little more, um, there are a few that are shrinking or growing a little less than I think people expected. The ones that are growing, in some cases, they're spending a lot more money than I think people expected them to, to, to achieve that little bit of growth. So all of that in aggregate, I think, is quite bullish. And, um, and again, I think there's the things that are really hard to predict, like uh, what is economic activity level going to be next month or six months from now? I think I think you just don't really know. There's a lot of economic uncertainty that you were talking about earlier, um, and I, I just don't know. I don't know that anyone knows that. And frankly, where I've seen people make predictions around that, they've mostly been wrong. At least sometimes, like the the. the accuracy rate on those sorts of predictions seems to be very, very low. So I just try to not worry about that so much. I understand there's going to be material volatility. And I think looking at the supply side and then understanding the medium to longer term demand trends, which is that oil demand in aggregate, even through the financial crisis, even through whatever uh, demand has basically grown around 1% a year annualized for most of the last 40 years. And, and we're still not caught up to demand from pre-COVID, but we're, we're on path to get there, assuming that China reopens at some point, which again, sort of you look at history, uh, there are these sort of essentially from a historical perspective, they look like speed bumps. In retrospect, they're a big deal at the time. And so when you look through these things, um, I find it's, it's really helpful to to try to focus on what you can know and then to try to, and you know, none of this is advice for anyone, um, but at least for what I do, I try to own things that can survive um, through a, a really rough period and then that thrive in the period that I expect, which is a sort of prolonged higher price environment. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, so shifting a little bit, when we look at, when we do look at China, because I, I, I think that that's, uh, in my opinion, in, in the work that we've done, I, I think that China is sort of a linchpin in a lot of different areas right now, uh, based on what's going on there. What, what type of, where is their, what, what, where is their oil consumption again compared to where it was pre-COVID? How far off are they? Um, you know what I mean? Like how, assuming that they open back up and come along, right? We, we, how much demand does that bring back into the market? How much is you know how much is their consumption down compared to where it was? It, it looks like I mean China is notoriously uh, their published figures are notoriously unreliable. Right. Uh, it's kind of similar to people citing OPEC plus spare capacity based on the country's disclosures of their spare capacity, um, where there'll be like multiple conflicting documents. I was on a, a like a panel recently and someone cited the published numbers from Saudi Arabia and UAE. And the funny thing is that Saudi Arabia publishes one set of numbers for their OPEC disclosures and then 
their Aramco bond indenture showed a different set of numbers. And, you know, <laughs> uh, so you want to be careful with that. So I think similar with China, it does look like China, Chinese oil consumption is down roughly two to three million barrels a day versus where it was even a few months ago. And so they did a big lockdown. Um, I think it was earlier this year, then they reopened mostly, and then they, they locked down pretty hard a number of different cities. Um, from what I can tell, and again, I'm not a China expert, uh, my, my just broad view is two things. One, it seems like the general deal in China is that the people will accept an authoritarian uh, kind of brutal government in exchange for improving quality of living over time. Um, and, and that requires economic growth uh, in different forms. And so, so that's one aspect. And then the other is that when countries get to a certain per capita GDP level, you start seeing per capita oil consumption rise a lot and energy consumption, but we're, we're focused on oil for this. Um, it rises a lot even if GDP doesn't grow more. So once you get to about that sort of $10,000 per uh, person, and uh, this is probably an old number, so maybe it's 12,000 now inflation adjusted or whatever, but there's some number where you start seeing people stop taking the bus and start using gas-powered scooters. You, you see them switch from gas-powered scooters to a cheap gas-powered automobile. And you know there is some EV adoption there, but there's still huge incremental um, gasoline vehicle consumption and diesel vehicle consumption. Uh, and, and so I think, I think there's this big trajectory there, just a wealth effect that is flowing through. And so I think oil and energy consumption in China is a different consideration than their broader economy. I think China could... Um, there's a lot of different uh, potential outcomes, but I think a, a very bearish outcome for China that's worth addressing because it, it may be likely, I don't know for sure, but it's it's certainly something I've seen that people present as bearish for oil and I think they just don't understand is that China goes the Japan route because of demographics, because of um, you know overbuild on certain things and, and maybe Japan in the late 80s, early 90s is the analog for what's happening in China now. To the extent that happens, that's not bearish for oil. It's actually quite bullish for oil because um, you'll you'll have this wealth effect where you still have more people driving instead of taking the bus, and you end up with probably millions of barrels a day more oil consumption over time, even without any sort of um, real. Uh, growth in uh, GDP. So again, I think that's really different from a view on sort of China growing for the broader economy, for the broad sort of US S&P 500, uh, very different from a view on other sort of uh, basic materials, uh, sort of the argument on OPEX versus CAPEX commodities. Uh, oil is very much an OPEX commodity. And then I think it's also just a wealth-linked commodity. And so as as China upholds its sort of basic deal with its population, which is making them wealthier over time, um, or at least distributing sort of basic goods and services to them over time at an increasing amount or rate, um, I think you end up with structurally higher oil consumption in China, even in a sort of quite negative circumstance that's being discussed increasingly these days. Okay, so so flipping the script just a little bit, um, I, I've seen a lot of talk about this, 
And as a reformed gold bug, um, yeah, I probably wasn't a gold bug, but but you know I've talked about it on the show many times. I was one of the guys that came out of 08, 09, uh, thought rampant inflation was on the way due to quantitative easing. Um, obviously, from and and that and that felt really good and looked really good uh, up until about the end of two thousand eleven. Uh, and then, and then things turn, and it kind of it 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 it, it set me off on a journey that that uh, has proven very valuable in the sense that that I learned to understand the way that the financial system works a lot better, understood the global monetary system a lot better, um, and whenever I hear arguments like I've been hearing lately, I don't dismiss them, but I'm skeptical, and. Of course, I think most of us know, I, I, you certainly, I'm sure do, that you know a lot of the gold bugs have been crying for over a decade uh, at how manipulated the gold price is. And the reason the gold price isn't at 3500 is because they, right, they are, are, are holding it back. Um, I, I've heard similar arguments recently from fairly credible people, actually, talking about the disconnect between the physical market and the paper market. Um, obviously, as an oil fan, arguments like that are attractive because, again, it, 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 it goes to, well, I'm not wrong. The market is. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, though, because, again, there, there's some – I was surprised to hear it coming from some of the people I heard it from because these are not charlatans or pariahs. I'm not going to name them just because I don't want to put them on blast or you know throw them out there. I haven't asked any of their permissions to to talk about it, so I don't. I don't want to talk out of school here. But a, is there anything to that? And b, do have you noticed the same? And c, if that is the case, um, how do you square that? What what are you? What do you chalk it up to? So yeah, I mean, I've heard that a lot. Um, there are some things that are fact that would support that. There are some price movements that would support it. And then there's just sort of a sanity check, which doesn't support it, which is why I think you're asking why it's not just an accepted fact. So the fact is that uh, there have been job postings for commodity traders uh, by the Federal Reserve. And <laughs> it's oh, just really geez. weird, right? Like, I don't know <laughs> what someone with a commodity trading background is supposed to be doing at the Federal Reserve. So I know that. Um, and indirectly, I know of people who were reached out to for, for those roles. So, so not, not firsthand, but secondhand. So again, a little bit of a discount on that sort of information. Um, we know that there's a sort of, uh, it's euphemistically called like a pump protection um, group, which uh, could intervene in the markets to the extent of actually potentially, I think, buying market indexes and crashes. And so to the extent that the Federal Reserve or other sort of monetary uh, or fiscal authorities have the ability and the permission to, so they're able to and they're allowed to intervene in markets to the extent of buying market futures or ETFs of various sorts in fixed income and equities, um, and then potentially futures on those. I'm not sure why they can't do that with commodities. Um, there has been, I guess the, the weird part about it is um, that you would think that that activity 
should be that there's a sell down of the strategic petroleum reserve, which is another reason to think this, right? There's these very weird messages coming out from the White House talking about how they're doing everything they can to have lower gasoline prices and lower oil prices. And if they're allowed to do it and they're saying that they're doing everything they can, then I mean, if you just believe them at face value, then they're saying that, I mean, this is included in the things they appear to be allowed to do and consistent with past behavior or just in other markets. So why not? The, the weird thing is you would think that they would be out there buying longer dated futures on oil to refill the SPR with. And instead, the argument is that you're seeing these sort of weird at moments of low liquidity um, pre-market, middle of the night, and so on, sell-offs over and over again in oil futures. And the one other thing that that I notice on this is that um, there are many people for whom, um, I mean, everyone says or acknowledges that price drive is narrative, but there are many people who will say that price is fact and that your understanding of the market needs to be driven by the price that you see on your screen. It's sort of like the the ultimate extreme of uh, efficient hypothesis uh, right. religion, right? It's not right. even the hypothesis. It's like the, the far end extreme. Fama, <laughs> who I know, uh, n- never meant that, right? There was always, it would say, it's, it's a theory. I mean, I, I studied in Research Chicago, right? The idea was you come up with these things, you use them to model stuff, and then you learn something when you have to make an exception or when there's an adjustment. It's, the point isn't to model the world and, and rely on it. The point is to, to learn something. It's like uh, I went to the Coase lecture uh, done by Coase, and um, he talked about how people take his theory literally. I don't think he's alive anymore, but at the time, you know, he talked about this, and he said, like, they just don't understand. Like, th- this isn't our process. So, um, so I think I think that's also indicative. I think there might be people that think that price is reality, and therefore, if they change price, they can change the reality. Um, so, so those are all reasons I think to consider it. The flip side is again, it just doesn't it doesn't pass a, a sniff test. Um, so I don't know. I mean, like, it doesn't really change my world too much if that is happening. Um, and to the extent that oil prices are being suppressed, unlike gold, which is mostly a investment product, and so if the price is held down and the demand is held down because price is held down, it doesn't really affect inventories that much. Oil is used, and I think it's like 60 days or 70 days of, of all the world's oil production is in storage, and the rest of it's been burned in the history of oil. And so as we burn off more and more of the remaining strategic reserves and the remaining uh, crude inventories, um, and actually that number seems way too high at this point given where inventories are, maybe it's 20 days now, um, but uh, as we burn off those inventories, the price for oil structurally rises. And so the more it's suppressed, the more oil is consumed and the higher sort of the natural price for oil goes. Right. So, you know, it's not gold. Um, it gets used. And so if someone were to try to suppress the price by doing this, it would be very much a sort of coiled spring mechanism, right. along with pain for you and me owning the equities, right? Like they price off the futures. So um, it's not so fun in the short term, but it's also just not something, again, I've just shared some thoughts on it, but it's not something I necessarily believe. And even if I, I did believe it, it wouldn't really change much in terms of what I'm doing. Yeah, no, and I agree with you completely. I, I, I was just curious about it. Uh, and the reason I was curious about it is because, to me, um, 
you know, I, I I really try to stay out of conversations regarding plunge protection teams and all this kind of stuff because, look, I, I don't know. Um, would I put it past the powers that be to do that? No. Um, especially after watching what to, – to me, Josh, the game changer in COVID – I don't want to get too far off the beaten path. But the game changer to me in COVID is when the Fed started purchasing corporates. And everybody will say, oh, it was the Treasury. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it, the Treasury was using the $2.5 trillion that were put in the, in the, in the special purpose vehicle that, that was funded by the Fed. So, I mean, you know, that's like if I give my kid $5,000 and send them to the mall, everybody's like, oh, there's, that kid's spending their $5,000. Well, no, right? It's, they're, they're spending my money by proxy. So it's me purchasing the goods. Um, and and that, that changed the math to me where I sat back and went, hmm. You know, because the purchase of, of, of individual securities or, or um, you know, or debt issuances from independent from individual companies, uh, anything outside of sovereign debt purchases is specifically against the Fed mandate. Right. Or, or the Federal Reserve Act. Um, and so that that kind of per, that kind of I, I remember when that came across the screen, I went, whoa, whoa, that's that's a game changer. Um, and so it's something that I can't completely discount because I'm sitting there going, well, if you're going to buy individual uh, bonds, you know, from, from individual corporations, then I don't understand why that would not spread into other things. Right. It, it, I don't. To me, the seal is broken. Um, but like you said, that's kind of the same. It's, it's good to hear you say that because the way I was rationalizing it to myself was, well, you know, look, that can create some short-term pain and short-term frustration, but because oil is consumed, the way I've looked at it is the longer they're quote-unquote successful at whole, and they, I'm not talking about the, the shadowy they, right? I'm talking about the administration, right? The, like you said, listening to what they say, as long as they are successful at pushing the price of oil down, I see it as just coiling that spring even further, right? It's, it's backloading the issues and creating a bigger issue down the road. Um, <clears throat> so, but, but would you agree with that? Do you see a disconnect from the paper and physical markets? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so does uh, the head of Saudi Arabia. So, right. uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's. Uh, I was joking with someone that that they were following my Twitter feed because I've I've put out some stuff on it, you know, and various other sort of more prominent people. So, like, clearly just a joke. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's a reasonable way to think about it. I think you said basically what I said with way fewer words and uh, more simply. So yeah, I think we've already crossed the Rubicon, which is what I was saying. So. So it's not that I know that it's happening. It's just that it's not impossible. And they're saying that they're doing whatever they can. And this is included in that. So I don't think I don't think it's necessarily happening. I don't think it's unlikely. And the reality is that other than just some short term pain in lower prices than my companies would be realizing right this second, it doesn't change much. And if anything, the slower that this recovery is and the less the oil price moves and the more volatility there is, the better this bull market is. And frankly, on a multi-year basis, one, I get to buy more stocks cheaply. So, you know, fortunately been able to raise a little more money and deploy it. And again, none of this is a solicitation for a fund or anything like that. Just speaking candidly. Uh, so fortunately, been able to buy more um, at cheaper prices. But I think it also, uh, the more volatile, the less capital investment, because if you think about it, if you're putting money into a project, right, not just an incremental well, 
drilling already proved reserves, but you're going and drilling offshore, or you're going to a new province, a new uh, country that hasn't really had a lot of development. I mean, you're making a multi-year bet. And that looks scarier as oil bounces between 80 and 130 with huge volatility than it does if oil's basically at like 100 pretty flat for a long time. So the more volatility, the more this happens, the less investment. And and I guess I'll just tie this to what's happening in Europe. You have the UK where it looks like there's a phenomenal new prime minister and <laughs> I'm American, so not trying to get involved in politics, just purely energy policy. So they're working on supply. They're going to incentivize new development and they're trying to solve supply and then they're backstopping demand by uh, essentially they're going to subsidize consumption, it looks like, at least for, resident, for uh, individuals and citizens and then um, potentially also for businesses. The EU is still squeezing supply and may or may not support the consumption. And so um, I think I think you want to see the world would be better if everyone was supporting supply, but price being volatile is similar to sort of EU ESG type uh, policies squeezing supply and essentially um, almost guaranteeing an undersupplied market for longer. Yeah. No, it's it's. <laughs> it, I was thinking the same thing when I was reading some of the, the new prime minister's statements coming out of there, and I just said, "Look, I don't know who she is, but but it really is a breath of fresh air, like a like a drink of really cold water after a long run." And 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 what I mean by that is, it was just sanity, right? Like sanity has become very refreshing, <laughs> just because, in my opinion, it is in very short supply. Um, and, and it's, it's mind numbingly stupid, um, what these people are doing and, and the way that they're quote unquote attacking these issues. Um, and by attacking, I mean, exacerbating the problems. Um, let's flip a little bit more to the individual companies themselves. One one of the things that, um, you know, everybody knows my thoughts, so I'm, I'm not making excuses here. And quite honestly, the energy positions that we hold have been by far and away our best performers. Um, and they're still ridiculously dirt cheap, but, but it is amusing to me and it shouldn't be surprising to me, I guess, because I've jokingly referred to this market over and over as the dumbest market I've ever seen in terms of, um, and, and there's reason for it. I'm not saying there's not, but, but fundamental analysis has been extraordinarily discounted. Um, I put out a tweet the other day, I was joking around and, and I said, you know, uh, you know, the question in Jeopardy style is, you know, what are old arcane uh, uh, um, uh, tools used by boomers and dinosaurs or something like that effect to to select uh, to select investments and and the answer is what what are fundamentals and and uh, financials um, and so you know I think you see that writ large across the market that valuation really has been discounted for quite some time, in my opinion. There might be other people that, that take umbrage with that, uh, and that's fine. Um, but it's it, it really is interesting to me to watch the movements of these oil stocks and watch how they – and again, I, I've actually been surprised at how they've held up um, considering this pullback in the price of oil because you and I both know um, – for a, for a while there, any excuse to sell oil stocks. I mean, I remember days where oil stocks were down two to three percent, and oil was up three or four percent. You know what I mean? Like it just it was completely disconnected. Recently, they seem to just trade like ETF or oil ETFs, 
right? If oil's up, those stocks go up. If oil's down, the stocks go down. And something I was joking with you about off the air was that it, everybody's like, why are you selling oil stocks? I've actually had this conversation with several people. Why do you think it's time to sell? Well, oil's pulling back. Okay, so where do you think it's going to go? I think it could hit 70. And I go, okay, did you run 70 through your models and see what that company's profits and revenue look like at 70? They kind of look back at you at a blank stare. Well, no, but, you know, Zach, if oil goes down, these things can't go up. It really is astonishing to me how little work there seems to be uh, that seems to have been done on the fundamental picture. Um, and And I'm sure that's frustrating to you. But I, I would like to hear your thoughts because when I look at a lot of these corporations, do I care about short term? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm human, right? I, I don't like to see things going against me, even if it's just for a few days. You know, nobody, you know, that's that's a tough part about investing. You know, um, you, <laughs> I, I joke to our clients all the time. Look, guys, if I could just buy things that went up to up into the right all the time, I, I'd prefer to do that. Um the fascinating thing to me, though, is that these things are some of the greatest cash machines I have ever seen in my career. And watching them just get whipped around with the price of oil with no deference being paid to the underlying fundamentals is, is, is pretty mind-blowing to me. A, how do you – what are your thoughts on that? A, do, do you agree with me? I, I'm assuming you do, but I shouldn't probably make that assumption. And then B, on, on a psychological level, Josh, how do you deal with that? How, how do you deal with it? If, if, if you agree with me and you're watching – and I'll just kind of illustrate one of my points. And I've, I've said this on the show many times. There's a, there's a, a company that we own um, that has – I, I want to say it's either 95 or 100 percent of their production hedged at 90, okay, um, on oil. They, they also produce nat gas, but but I don't I don't think that they're hedging their nat gas. But anyway, 100 percent of their their production of oil was hedged at 90 for the next year or so. I'd have to check it now today. I, I haven't looked recently, but um, it, the the price of oil pulled back from 115 down to 90. The stock dropped 45 <laughs> percent. I'm just sitting there going, "Good Lord, does anybody pay attention to this stuff?" So, so A, again, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and expound on it and take it some different directions if you've got some insights and thoughts on that as well. And then B, um, how do you deal with that frustration? Because I'm assuming like me, maybe I shouldn't make this assumption again, but I'm assuming like me, you know, you'd prefer just to watch this stuff go up or at least trade somewhere around a valuation that makes sense based on the, you know, the cash flows and the revenues. How do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? How do you keep your, your, yourself from pulling your hair out? <laughs> uh, well, I'm losing some hair, so I don't know. Me too, brother. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my business is exploiting mispricings in the public market. So yep. if everything traded how you're suggesting it should, I wouldn't be in business. Right. And I do think that'll happen over time. I think that these enormous valuation disconnects will uh, get arbed away. And I think the big price swings, uh, there's some psychological effects, like you're saying, or some sort of short term, like a lot of the people who are left who will buy oil stocks, um, are ones who didn't lose their money in the last multiple sort of false horizon oil bull markets in 2015 and 2017 and early 2018 and 
late 2019, early 2020. So like there were multiple times where people could buy and the people that are left with money have been trained to sell when there's any sort of sniff of oil prices falling or some sort of negative uh, to the sector. And so I think that's a great opportunity. And I mean, it's very frustrating when stuff I own doesn't go up as much as I think it should, or it goes down more than I think it should. And the way I deal with it, I mean, I kind of joke with people that all on down days hide under my desk and click buy. And so <laughs> I just, you know, if I have a view that's different than the market and I feel very confident in it, I'll buy more. And, um, you know, it goes both ways. Uh, there were companies that in early June, I thought were, were kind of outrunning their fundamentals a little bit. And so I was selling some of those um, down some. And, and even, you know, in the last few days, I've been trimming some stuff and buying other securities that I think are very mispriced. So I think, I think what you're describing is totally true. I think it's a huge mistake for allocators to not have significant capital in oil and gas. And the opportunity is that none of them or almost none of them are doing it. The ones that are doing it are almost all doing it through large cap exposure, which is idiotic because mm -hmm. you buy these large caps at five or six times cash flow and you can buy the small caps at two times. And right. yeah, there's more idiosyncratic risk. So buy more of them. Right. Right. Like it's not. Uh, you, know, you can diversify uh, that risk away. Yeah, or you can diversify it or you can address the risk by doing deep work on individual securities and do it like you do with private equity or with other sort of investments and just not like you don't have to go into these things blind. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's really it's a great opportunity. The smart money is gone. Um, there is smart money, I think, in the larger caps and there's way fewer dislocations like, you know, you could argue that EOG is interesting versus Pioneer or whatever. Like I saw that in some sell side report the other day. That's nice, right? Like one of them maybe trades at six times and there's at five and a half times. That's not my world. And frankly, I think that's sort of missing the bigger picture, which is that you can buy producers that are adjacent to them at two or three times EBITDA. And you know, why if as long as you're not deploying so much money in the sort of billions of dollars where you have to go to those bigger uh, market caps and more liquidity, I mean, there's just such an amazing opportunity. And the people, again, the capital is scared away either from ESG or because they're trying to avoid mark to market volatility. And um, you know, the hedge funds also similar sorts of concerns. A lot of them sort of cut their exposure to the sector in June or July. Um, the futures, you can see there's very, very low exposure. And I just think it's a wonderful opportunity to deploy capital. And some of what I think you and I do is absorb that angst and volatility for our clients. So my clients get statements on a monthly basis. And again, not a solicitation, just sort of explaining how I see the market and uh, using a real example. Um, so my clients get monthly statements. They don't see the <laughs> like insane volatility in any of these individual stocks on any given day. And I think that helps. And I think it makes it more investable um, to not have to stomach each of these things on a daily basis like you and I are seeing. And, you know, um, I think it's even easier if you just don't have to stare at it too much. But there is this great opportunity, right? There are things that are crazy cheap right here that are cheaper than they were a year ago on a, a cash flow basis, on a replacement cost basis. Um, 
There are companies that have improved a lot through enormous debt pay down. Um, there's further evolution in this sort of uh, oil field services cost inflation thesis, which has me invested heavily in producers that have low decline rates. So when the rig cost doubles, right, when it costs you 35000 a day for a, a rig instead of uh, 18000 like it cost a year and a bit ago um, for, for a, a rig to drill a shale well or whatever, I mean, if, you're, if your decline rate is 10% or 12% a year, you need to drill way fewer wells uh, per you know, amount of production that you have versus a company where your production decline rates 30 or 40% a year. Um, so, so the 30 or 40% are way more sensitive to services costs. The ones with you know, a 10% or 15% decline rate are way less sensitive. And that's just like one example, but there's many different examples of different attributes of companies that make them likely to succeed now and in the future. And everything you're saying, I think you just turn it on its head. It's terrible and a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think you just can't, can't get too down on it. And uh, that's also where having a multi-year view on this helps, where if this was it for oil and it was about to go to 60 and just stay there for a long time, um, maybe it wouldn't be so interesting to go buy the things at two times cash flow or whatever. But I think understanding the cycle and having a view that oil is likely over where it is now on average, on a multi-year basis, uh, I think it gets very exciting to go fishing for those value opportunities. And and you're you're doing you're doing a lot of more my work for me here, for my clients that are listening to this show. Please listen to what Josh just said. And this is exactly why I've been telling. See, our clients have the ability to look at their accounts every single day, and far too many of them do that. And they'll call me panicked. And that 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 oil company that I was telling you about that dropped forty five percent. I got so many, and I go, guys, let me run you through the cash flow picture of this company, right? And they've, they've got some geopolitical risks, but, but no debt. They're just cash flow. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous cash flow. And I just said to him, hey, guys, if you'd bought a house for a million bucks and you could rent it for three hundred and fifty to 400000 a year, would you care that your Zillow estimate was down 12 to 15%? No, right? Just because you're in in two to two and a half years, you're going to get a hundred percent of your investment back via the you know just via the rent you're charging. And so, anyway, for my clients out there, guys, it's not just me telling you not to watch it. And you know, they go, "Well, Zach, I can't." And I go, it, it, "It's it's no good. It's no good because you equate the price going up and down with with the success of the investment, right? You're not looking at the underlying fundamentals. It it is exorbitantly frustrating for me, though." Uh, you know, and frustrating, I think you put it perfectly, right? It, it, there's frustration, but there's also optimism because if, if, if this dislocation is what you and I think it is, it's incredible opportunity because I am still a firm believer that investing is about buying discounted cash flows. And if that is still the case, that revenues and profits and cash flows matter, then um, you know these these investments will be terrific, right? If if you can stomach it and you can stick with it and stay disciplined and ignore the noise, um, because just like I said, I, I keep going back to the fundamentals on these things, and you look at the amount of cash they're throwing off, and you look at the margins and the profit. the The other thing you mentioned, and I think it's something that people don't really understand. Um, you know, I hear talk of, oh, oil might have topped and, oh, the run might be over and, oh, that are... I don't think people really understand, especially with the smaller companies, 
that look, oil is going to go up and down. It's going to do what it does. But but I don't think that they have an appreciation for the the profits that these companies have already made and are currently making are transformative for their businesses, right? It, the, these companies, a lot of them, especially the well-managed ones, just via what's happened over the last 16 months, these structurally are not the same companies that they were two years ago. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, totally. The balance sheets have improved a lot. Their cost structures have improved a lot. Um, I think I think there are some significant misconceptions in the industry that um, I think we're, we're starting to see cleared up uh, and I think should further clear up as some of these things re-rate a lot more than others. Like there, there are significant quality differences among these producers um, as well as the service companies and so on. And, and I think... Um, I think this sort of broad paintbrush that you're that you're describing opens up amazing stock selection opportunities where individual companies can actually do a lot better than their indexes. And yeah, mostly they trade in line with their indexes, but then there are days or weeks or months where they way outperform or way underperform. And so I think um, I think there are various theories. I guess one thing I've noticed. Um, that really hurts short-term performance and really helps medium-term in terms of um, uh, stock ownership is whatever the narrative of the day is, yeah, your stuff will do a little better if it's doing what's popular, but if it's if the company is doing the right thing in terms of maximizing the growth of the net asset value, um, maximizing sort of high return investment, minimizing low return investment, um, and just sort of optimizing around intrinsic value um, and return of intrinsic value, I think I think there's room for some of these companies to way outperform. And so I think um, you know even independent of having non-core assets that can get liquidated for high prices relative to the current valuations, in addition to various other things, I think there are there are superior business models and there are superior managements and boards engaging in those business models. And I think. I think there is still among the few people that invest in oil and gas uh, professionally, as well as sort of the retail uh, ownership in the space. I think there's really room to materially outperform over time by sort of ignoring the noise and finding things that are of substantial value, not just on an absolute basis, but also relative to peers. Yeah. Uh, anything else, Josh? I always like to. I, I always like to to finish up this, uh, you know, because I've got my I, or finish up this way. I've I've got the stuff that I want to ask you, and I've gone through the vast majority. I mean, I could sit here and do this for three more hours. Um, but anything else that you've noticed that is interesting to you that you think investors need to be paying attention, watching, whether it's geopolitical machinations. Oh, the one other thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about, because you, you, you put out some interesting stuff about this recently. Um, so two things. First of all, I would like you to, to spend, and, and I've already kept you here for an hour, so I don't want to abuse your time. Um, I, I would like you to, to discuss a little bit what is happening in Russia, uh, it seems to be, at least through the media that I've seen lately, and I, I, I've become a media skeptic, I, I, I believe for good reason, um, <laughs> and not become, I guess I've been a, a bit of a skeptic my entire life, but um, seems to be at least reports out about Ukraine, you know, battling back and, and taking some ground. And, um, you know, it, 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 at least that seems to be the news of late. 
Um, but I want to talk about Russia's role in all of this and how much what they do and what they don't do will impact global oil supplies. Um, it is my understanding that, that the amount of oil they're selling is basically back to where it was prior to the war. Um, where, what, how do you see – I don't even really know the question to ask, Josh, because I see it I, – I, there's so many different potential ways to, to look at this situation or analyze it. But if you could help us and our listeners kind of break down the role that Russia is playing and the impact that they could have, whether, you know – the Ukrainian situation deteriorate. You know what I mean? Just kind of kind of break down where Russia fits into this picture. And then I want you to kind of tie things up the way you see fit, whether there's some things that we need to be paying attention to that we haven't discussed yet or some things of note that, that you're really focused on um, at, at the moment that we haven't discussed yet. Sure. Um, so uh, I'm not a um – geopolitical expert. And frankly, I would argue that most of the people that people think are geopolitical experts are not also, they're just good at sales charlatans, um, and yeah. sounding smart. Uh, so I don't know what will happen with Russia and Ukraine. And again, I would posit that almost no one knows and almost everyone that you'll hear share an opinion on it doesn't know and just as good at speaking confidently about things they don't know. Um, and, and we'll make lots of claims and then point to ones that have worked out as evidence of their success or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. Putin probably knows, uh, <laughs> but he and I aren't on speaking terms. Uh, so uh, you got to reach out to old Vlad. I'm sure, I'm sure you <laughs> yeah, will right. talk to him. Um, so I think, I think what I do know about Russia is that their oil fields are complex and the new projects they have going on seem unlikely to be highly successful without the best uh, talent and best technology in the industry, and that talent and technology has left Russia. And so, um, yeah, they have competent people internally. Yeah, Chinese and other oil field services companies have some uh, talent and technology, but I don't think they're likely to accomplish their production goals um, pre-war now that they are under sanctions and so on. And I don't think that really changes for a while, um, even if there were to be uh, peace, which obviously I, I hope for. None of this is like my per emotional whatever, like I, I want peace. But, uh, you know, economically, I think um, I, I don't know there will be peace if there is. I don't know that it will necessarily help Russia's supply situation because it does seem likely that there will be technology sanctions for some amount of time and some hesitance among U.S. and Western companies to do business in Russia uh, for some protracted period. So my, my estimate is still that about a million barrels a day of Russian oil production comes off from the start of the war. So that'd be by early next year. And then maybe another million to two million barrels a day over the following year, subject to continued sanctions. That's very big in the context of the oil market. And it's especially big because Russia basically turned on all their potential production um, shortly after they invaded Ukraine. And so they're experiencing natural declines in their fields as well as likely declines from 
in uh, in expert, I guess, or not applying the best technology to their existing production, along with not applying the best techniques and technology uh, to their new fields that they're developing. So I think that all matters from an oil market perspective and sort of the rest. I guess the one other thing, it doesn't seem very likely that Russia is going to adequately supply Europe with natural gas anytime soon. And so um, natural gas prices, the TTF price is down a lot over the last month um, or even over the last two weeks, but still up many times from its price a year and a half ago. And that matters a lot. That The one thing I would add that you didn't ask is there is significant gas to oil switching going on right now. The general estimates that people put out are on the low end because I think they just weren't willing to do the work that we did. We're actually, uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to be editing a white paper that we wrote, put together, and sort of uh, getting that out this afternoon on this uh, right now. And um, we see likely a million barrels a day on the low end of consumption uh, because of higher natural gas prices and essentially forced switching in Europe and Asia. And there is potential for two or more million barrels a day of oil and oil products consumption uh, for power and heat this winter. And potentially some of that continuing into spring next year, depending on what the natural gas situation looks like. So. That's very, both of those numbers, the Russian oil production falling by a million barrels a day and potentially a million to two million barrels a day of incremental consumption um, for, for power and heat. I mean, th- these are very big numbers in the context of a market that's already likely slightly undersupplied, again, subject to China reopening. Yeah. Okay. Now, now to tie it all up, any anything else that that we haven't discussed that you think we need to be keeping our eyes on and watching as this situation develops? And I use that word on purpose because you know it is oil after all, and we are talking about the global economy, and this stuff is changing quick. What 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 have we not discussed that you think is key and that we need to be keeping our eyes on? It just just a few a few things that I won't really elaborate too much on, but there's geopolitical risk in both directions. So Iraq has had some recent uh, small scale violence across multiple cities, and there's some risk to Iraqi oil production to the downside. There's some risk to Iran coming to a deal, which seems unlikely now, but it's possible uh, where oil production could rise a little and where they could sell some of their uh, reserves. Uh, into the market. Uh, There's some risk that Europe has a hard economic landing that leads to enough oil demand destruction that it overcomes the demand increase from the gas to oil switching. Seems unlikely, but also possible. Um, And there are various other factors like the world economy and sort of this whole shift of uh, goods to services consumption, which I think has been very poorly covered in the media. But that whole dynamic and um, how it plays out in the U.S. and other economies in the world is is very interesting and worth watching for oil because you could also have this sort of interesting thing where you have less economic growth than forecast, but more oil consumption than forecast if you have more consumption of services and less consumption of goods. Sure. Um, so anyway, a bunch of different things out there, lots, lots of stuff to watch. Um, and again, just my take on all of this is the way to stay sane is to do the in-depth fundamental work on the market. And in this case, on the oil market, I think it is possible to understand it by studying it in depth. 
and to zoom out a little and say, okay, I don't know how a lot of those things that we talked about today or that I just mentioned uh, in these last few minutes, I don't know how any of those necessarily plays out exactly, but the general trend is insufficient investment over many years leading to disappointing supply, which means likely higher prices for longer than people expect. All right, man. Well, fair enough. Josh, I can't thank you enough for your time. Great to have you back on again and get your thoughts to go over this ever-evolving, intriguing, uh, at times distressful uh, situation in the world energy markets. And, and uh, really, really appreciate your willingness to come on and provide some clarity there. So the folks can follow you. Uh, tw- Twitter handle. I had it written down here. It's, it's uh, What's your Twitter handle again for the folks? Yeah, thanks, Zach. It's a Josh underscore Young underscore one uh, or Bison Interest. Yeah, by, and then, guys, as always, I, I, I listen to a lot of this stuff. I research a lot of this stuff. If you're looking to get some more exposure to energy, which I do not think is a bad idea, uh, you can contact Josh. What, Josh, what's the best way for the folks to get a hold of you if they're interested in talking to you about uh, you know, getting in the fund or investing with you? Uh, so I would check out bisoninterest.com, our website, and uh, qualified investors are welcome to sort of sign up and, and let us know that they want to uh, learn more about the fund. And again, I <laughs> didn't mean this as a solicitation, uh, just intended to provide sort of general uh education about the oil market and, and frankly to get your take on some of the things that i'm seeing yeah you bet and and the solicitation is on my part so it, it didn't come from you um i just really respect the work you do and i and i think um i think you're doing a heck of a job man so uh, once again appreciate you coming on i appreciate you guys listening hopefully you gleaned as much from this conversation as i did and uh we got a couple other great interviews lined up for the next two weeks so don't want you don't want to miss out on those anyway you guys thanks for listening have a fantastic week or weekend rather and as always we'll be back next week you're listening to the know your risk radio podcast download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com the opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security it is only intended to provide education about the financial industry to determine which investments may be appropriate for you consult your financial advisor prior to investing any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly as always Please remember, investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.